Please allow me to welcome you to the Authenticity Series sponsored by the C.H. Spurgeon Center for Pastoral Leadership and Preaching here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're glad that you could join us for this episode of our series. What we're trying to do is put together a, a series where we authentically, honestly talk about the real life of a real pastor. And so each time we film one of these and we present these episodes to you, we're, we're just handling one of those real topics in ministry that our students will face and many of you as pastors and church leaders are facing now. So thank you for joining us and we appreciate those who are here with us live. This is being filmed on campus in November 2014, just to give you a reference point, and we're so glad that you could join us. So what we're going to do for a few moments is we're going to have a panel discussion as we talk about the subject matter of dealing with conflict in ministry. And so I'm really excited about the panel that we have with us this evening and look forward to visiting with them. When you download this on the website, you'll also notice that there's some resources uh, there that go along with this, and I hope that you'll download those and use those in your ministry as well. Let me introduce our guests uh, that are going to help us tonight, and then we're going to dialogue with the students and guests that are here with us as well live. But Dr. Larry Purcell is here in the middle. Dr. Larry Purcell is Associate Professor of Leadership and Discipleship here at Southeastern. He's also an Associate Dean of our Ministry Studies area. Uh, Dr. Purcell has a Ph.D. in Leadership. Uh, And one of the reasons that I'm excited about having Larry here with us, Larry and I are old friends, uh, but what I also appreciate about Dr. Purcell is his real-life experience. In fact, both of our guests, our panelists, Uh, this evening have real-life experience that I want to talk about. Dr. Purcell not only has been in pastoral ministry for 30 years, as well as his seminary experience, but he also comes with a decade or so of combat military experience. And so uh, this is a man who really does know conflict and has seen it in uh, several arenas. Uh, He teaches in this area, conferences in this area, and uh, also consults in this area. So I'm really looking forward to hearing him and I hope he doesn't hurt me. Um, then we have Dr. Randy Mann, who is the lead pastor of Central Baptist Church here in Henderson, North Carolina. And once again, Dr. Mann, a graduate of Southeastern. But one of the exciting things I like about having Randy here with us, and this is really going to be helpful for our students, I think. Dr. Mann, before he became the lead pastor, served as an associate pastor in a church for many years. Uh, has been a lead pastor for just a couple of years, and I purposely wanted a fairly new lead pastor to talk about some of the conflict issues that he sees coming into that role initially. And so, we, you know, I've been a, I was a pastor for over 20 years. Dr. Purcell's been a pastor for over 30 years. And Dr. Mann, although he's been in ministry for many, many, many years, uh, in his new lead pastor role, we thought that that would give us a unique perspective. But the other thing about Randy that I think is really helpful is he also has a degree in nursing. And, and so he has this background in the medical field and understands, and so he's seeing conflict both inside and outside the church, real-life type situations, real people with real crisis working through some real issues. And so one of the reasons I invited them to join us uh, for this Spurgeon Center event was to, to get not only the church perspective but just that dose of reality that I think would be helpful, uh, helpful to us. And so uh, my name is Dr. John Ewart. I'm the director of the the Spurgeon Center at Southeastern. I'm an associate vice president at Southeastern. Uh, I teach missions evangelism, some leadership courses as well. 
tonight, more importantly, I come with a guy who, as a guy who has 20-something plus years in local church ministry and church planning and missions, and also a guy who's been involved in church consultation with hundreds of churches uh, all around the world. And so I've seen conflict, mediated conflict, helped churches reconcile conflict, uh, both on individual staff levels as well as congregational levels. So, so that's kind of who I am, which, which that and $5 or so will probably buy you a cup of coffee. So, <laughs> hey, it's good to see you guys here. We're glad that you could join us for this, and uh, I'm excited about talking about a, a kind of a difficult subject matter. Um, you know, Psalm 133, verse 1 uh, says this. Let me turn to it. It's a, it's a short verse, but it simply says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is uh, when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, Max Lucado once said that conflict is inevitable, uh, but combat uh, should be optional. <laughs> and so we're going to talk about some of these things in the context of the local church as well as in, uh, in ministerial life. So, uh, Dr. Purcell, as we get going, we, let's lay some foundations. So let's talk about some of the biblical theological, spiritual, foundational issues when it comes to conflict. Why conflict? Where does it come from? Why does it occur? Yeah, conflict is something obvious to all of us at some point in time. It's personal, it's interpersonal, and sometimes it is interpersonal. So it, it moves around us in a variety of ways. And often I hear the term that, well, it's the differences in us that create the conflict. And and there is some truth to that, but not, not total truth, because coming as a believer, as a Christian, uh, you and I understand something different. What we call the Imago Dei, or the image of God, the imprint of God upon us, uh, we are created in his image, unique in that way. And so there is both unity and diversity in us. Something I ask folks at times when they say, well, it's just these total differences that are in us. I say, well, if you really think about it, Eve existed before the fall. There was always a difference there. From the time of creation, there's been a difference. It was the fall that made all the difference. You read Genesis chapter 3 and you see that there was an enmity, there was uh, an enemy that, that was placed there in a sense. And where there was once harmony, now there's disharmony because sin has moved in and it creeps in very quickly. And so we see conflict. Matter of fact, you can go to the New Testament on that too. And you go to John, uh, go to John, you go to James. Uh, I was looking at John, and, uh, but you go to James chapter 4. And as you look in the first few verses there in James 4, it talks about the issue is the conflict that is within us. That there is a desire that is within us. That's the imprint of the fall, isn't it? You read Genesis chapter 3 again. There has been an enmity or a difference uh, in inequality between man and woman, man and creation, man and God. And in all of those areas, we could take time to look at it. We don't have time to look at all of that. Uh, but in, in looking at that, you begin to see that there is a wedge between me and you. There is a distance, a chasm between us. And sometimes it's personal desire. Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's gender. Uh, I've been married. Uh, my wife, I thank God for Terry, because uh, she's tolerated me for 39 years. And, and, uh, and we're going into our 40th year. And in marriage, and one of the things that I can tell you is, I've not made it pleasant for her all the way. 
she's had a challenge on her. She married me when I was not military, uh, and I went back into the military. And then later, she's a preacher's kid. Uh, she had no intent of that. And uh, being a preacher's wife, well, God led her in a different direction again and surprise. And there's all these conflicts and, and opportunities between people. But James chapter 4 talks about these differences that are before the fall and are very much a part of who we are in everyday life. And so when that, when that leaks into the church, and I use that verb on purpose, when it leaks into the church, it drips into the church, you know, is conflict inevitable in church life? And if so, why? It very much is. Uh, it is very much. It's not, it's not if there's going to be conflict. It's when there's going to be conflict. Uh, much of what I do in marital counseling when I'm dealing with a couple as a pastor, and I, I recommend you, uh, if you aren't married, that you get that, uh, because one of the things that is going to help you in is understanding how to communicate, because conflict is very much a part of that because of the desires, the differences, and again, like I said, sometimes personalities. Uh, it, one guy wrote it this way once, opposites attract, and then he wrote the second piece, opposites attack. Uh, because what drew me to you can make me not like you sometimes. Right, and so, you know, there's, there are folks who come into the church, I think, with expectations sometime that, that this is supposed to be a safe place, this is supposed to be a sanctuary, this is supposed to be a place that, that is conflict-free to where I can come and it's going to be a positive, not negative type experience. And and, uh, and certainly that's idealist, idealistic and also the ideal. You know, we want to see that happen. And so let, let's layer on this. I don't want to leave this completely. We're going to come back to this foundational point in a minute. But I want to go ahead and layer onto this, uh, Dr. Mann. Randy, Randy, help me for a second. Because part of what we're looking at when we talk about conflict in ministry is we're looking at what, what is the healthy church model. You know, what, what should a healthy church look like? How can, how can we best avoid excessive conflict in church by being the healthiest church possible. Uh, you got any comments about that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously we know in light of what Dr. Purcell just said, we live in the midst of a fallen world, right? I mean, we, we know that's a reality. And so we've, we've got to take that into account. Now, having said that, we also know that, that God has given us a standard, right? I mean, he, he's shown us in his word, who he is, uh, who we are, uh, as a result, how we're re to relate to him, how we're to relate to one another, right? Jesus would boil down all the commandments to two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. There really ought not be anywhere that that would be more clearly demonstrated than in the, uh, in the realm of the inaugurated kingdom that is already but not yet, right? That, that Christ came and introduced and that one day will be fulfilled. We ought to see a difference in how people love God above all else and how they love one another um, as, a, as an expression of this kingdom that is already and yet that is coming, right? And so clearly in terms of just that biblical foundation for the church, it has to start, I think, with the reality that Christ is the head, right? I mean, that, that has to be our foundation. Colossians 1, Ephesians 5 make that clear that Christ is the head of the church. Um, now, he has appointed uh, underneath the good shepherd, uh, under shepherds, right, to, to guide and to lead and to direct and to teach 
Um, we're given specific instruction on what that looks like. Uh, in First Peter 5, for instance, we're called to shepherd the flock of God who is among us and not for compulsion or for, you know, greedy gain and those kinds of things, but humbly and willingly. Um, in fact, I, I regularly say to our congregation that one of the great ironies of pastoral ministry is that the shepherds are also sheep. You know, I think we, we have to remember that ourselves because that, that'll temper uh, to a great degree how we go about it, um, practicing the leadership to which we've been called. Um, now, in light of that, if you have those who have been called to lead, then you likewise then have those who are called to follow, right? And so um, Hebrews 13, for instance, where uh, the people of God are called to uh, follow, to, to give support to, to follow the leadership of those who have been put in place over them, knowing that uh, those leaders have been given the charge of watching over their souls, so, I mean, that's a huge responsibility for, for the leader, but those who are followers should be able to recognize that kind of responsibility and care and, as a result, uh, submit to and, and follow that uh, leadership. Uh, I, in my view, uh, I think in terms of what a, what a biblical expression of church membership looks like, uh, our church is sort of set up in what I would call a staff-led congregational polity. Uh, so in other words, the, those who have been given the responsibility by God to lead are, are we're seeking to exercise that responsibility as given by God. And yet, as you see in the biblical model where the people of God would come together for key decisions, whether it's setting aside those that you recognize God's call upon to send them out in uh, ordination, whether as deacons or as uh, ministers, those kinds of things, the congregation as a body says, we see that. You know, they also make important decisions in the life and, and uh, ministry of the church, whether it's uh, the approval of an annual operating budget. This is how we agree together to steward the resources God has given us toward the call and mission that he's given us as a, as a local body and that sort of thing. So I think those are, those are some of the kinds of things. And the last thing I would just say about that is really having a, a biblical view of church membership, right? Really understanding what it means uh, in terms of who are identified with that local body um, and who are outside, really, the boundaries of that, though they may be geographically present, uh, who by biblical standards are outside of that. And that'll come into huge play when you deal with the issue of conflict because a regenerate church membership uh, obviously demands those who have surrendered their hearts and lives to Christ, who is the head of the church. So if you throw the back door open wide for anybody to come in and invite even into membership those who are unregenerate, you can be assured uh, of even greater conflict of all kinds. Sure. Yeah, I, I really want to echo this and, and Larry, get, you know, add to this. Uh, you know, as a, as a pastor but also as a consultant, um, I can't overemphasize, and I really want to say this to the students but also to pastors and, and leaders who are watching this, I can't overemphasize the need for you to have a solid ecclesiology. And the reason I say that is not because I work at a theological seminary and I want you to be, you know, a theologically minded person necessarily, although that's true. I say that because practically uh, this is going to be incredibly important. When I teach church planting courses, for example, one of the first things I always want to talk to church planters about is what are you trying to plant and, and how do you know if you do or not? You know, and, and when I talk about church revitalization, 
what are you trying to revitalize? And do you know even what that looks like? Because inevitably what Randy just said is going to be huge, and you're going to hear it again in a minute. How do I know what the standards are? How do I know what the expectations are if I don't have a strong, biblical, healthy model of what a church is supposed to be and what church membership and leadership are supposed to be? Because that's where my accountability is going to come in later. That's where the rules are. And so when somebody's not fighting fairly, when somebody's not participating well, I've got to have some standard against which to hold them. And there's no way to do that unless I... I have that standard determined, and that's got to become, come from the objective biblical source. So, so to have this strong concept of ecclesiology, this strong concept of this is what the church is, this is what the church is supposed to look like, this is what membership and leadership are supposed to look like, are huge when it comes to conflict. Because I, if I start talking about Matthew 18 or I start talking about Matthew 5 and I start talking about some of these discipline or accountability passages, that's the only way I'm going to hold somebody accountable. I've got to know what the standards are. Any comment about that? Yeah, yes. and I think I think one of the things that you deal with, and and this comes from my background in, in combat, is that in in the fog of war, it is called organized confusion. Uh, it gets stressful, and and what I try to get across to folks at times, your your theology becomes important. It becomes the most critical thing in your life at some point because it holds you together. To a soldier, it's his training. Uh, to a uh, to a pastor, to a minister in a church, it is his understanding of good theology, having good sound theology, and understanding what that means. Now it's the exercise of it. Theology can be just metaphysical if you're not careful. It's just a good human argument uh, here on campus. But now you're talking about leading something, and you've got intention and purpose. And it's not just the latest fad coming along. Uh, that's the big problem we run into today, and I call it a slick bag of tricks when it comes to leadership. And sometimes people talk to me and they say, oh, you're over leadership. And it's like they're looking at somebody who gives out a, a magic bag of tricks, uh, and that's not it. It's not it at all. It, it is theology in practice, and, and you have to understand what your theology is. Yeah, let me just jump onto that, too, because in the, in the laboratory, now, thankfully, I, I hope, I assume, all of you are are meaningfully engaged and involved in members of local churches while you're going through your seminary training. If you're not, shame on you, you should be. Um, but be that as it may, in, in the classroom, you really are sort of in the sterile laboratory in a lot of ways uh, of uh, theological ecclesiology. But when you get to the place, particularly within church leadership, where you are the one responsible for leadership, now you're into applied ecclesiology. And I, and I just want to remind you, and part of my nursing, I guess, background is coming out here. Uh, I had those that were in nursing school with me that made A's on all the nursing tests, which I despised. Uh, because the way they asked the questions, the way that they would do some of the things in training, it just it was disjointed, in my view, from real life. They would make A's on all of those nursing exams, and yet, uh, I promise you, I didn't want some of them taking care of me or anybody I loved, right? And so there has to be not only that sort of cognitive understanding of the, of the theological principles, as important as they are, and they are critically important, but equally important. And that's where I think the Spurgeon Center is so helpful is the knowing how to apply those theological principles in the context of real life, understanding that those sinful principles uh, of, of the fallen world in which we live, all of that brings to bear on 
how it is that we seek to call people to the biblical standard, but recognizing none of us are there yet. Right. So let's dive into some conflict discussion here. So we, we live in a fallen creation. The church is made up of, of sinful people. It's inevitable that when sinful people gather together, there's going to be conflict. Sometimes a sinful person can have conflict when they're all alone as well. <laughs> and uh, I, in fact, over the years, I've met some people. I, I talk about manageable stress levels. You know, that's an imaginary line that everyone has. And I know some people, when they wake up in the morning and their feet hit the floor, they have just maxed out their manageable stress level. And, and I've met people over the years who amaze me. They actually believe, now, now listen to this, they actually, and some of you out there, email me and tell me if you know these folks. I actually have met people who believe that life is supposed to go the way they want it to. I'm just amazed at these people. I've been their pastor. I've, been their pastor. I've you know, I think I was one of their sons, but that's a different story. But uh, yeah, I'm just like I'm telling you, and and they they stress out, and so life goes along, and we're kind of bumping like a heartbeat underneath that manageable stress level under normal conditions, and then inevitably we're going to cross over that manageable stress level. That's called crisis. When that happens, we have two choices. We've either got to figure out a way to get back below that line or we've got to raise our manageable stress level. And I know some people in churches that the issue is not just that they're not handling things well. The fact is their manageable stress levels are just too low. They're, they, they're stressing out over the smallest of things and freaking out over things that don't matter. So they get into secondary and tertiary issues instead of focusing on the, the primary thing. So I made a list earlier today. I was thinking about, okay, what are some common causes of conflict? Randy, get ready to help me think through how this translates into church life. And so, especially, I'm really interested as a newer pastor, I know the situation you're in, and know, know, know what you're, you're going through there, so I'm really curious to hear this perspective. But I just share, here's just a couple of things, and, and, and the professional here next to me could, could name a hundred more, but here's some reasons why people have conflict. Unmet needs lead to conflict. When people's needs aren't met over a long period of time, they're eventually going to get irritated, and, and conflict's going to occur. Uh, unrealistic expectation leads to, to conflict sometimes. Um, sometimes, as Larry was saying earlier, just, just personality differences and opposite personalities inevitably lead to conflict. Uh, obviously, change of almost any type, especially in church lives, <laughs> seems to lead uh, to, to conflict. Here's one, though, that I often think about, and I think it's often missed by people. When you devalue somebody, uh, it's going to cause conflict. And in ministry, that's a big deal. Uh, we have to have an awareness of value, and there are people who need certain things in their life, certain feed, uh, affirmations, certain types of feedback, or, or it's going to lead uh, to conflict. Obviously, all these things are wrapped up into sin, and all these, and, and we could list, uh, I'm sure, uh, 50 more. You probably have official lists from your, from your counseling background and, and experience. Uh, but just some of these general ideas. So, so Randy, help me now. So in the church, how does this, how does this practically translate sometimes? Yeah, there, if I had to boil it down, if I was going to boil it down to one word that, that sort of creates this conflict issue, uh, I think I would use the word that you mentioned a minute ago, change, right? And then, but the issue is, is that can take all kinds of shapes, um, and so change in any number of contexts will generate conflict. Uh, tradition is one, right? I mean, people are, we're bent toward what is comfortable, what is familiar. 
what's interesting to me when you consider the issue of uh, conflict over tradition, uh, you know, particularly over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, I guess there's been such an emphasis on uh, church planting. And in part, it's because guys didn't want to go out and lead existing churches because they wanted to avoid this battle with uh, tradition. However, remember, when you gather people together, it doesn't take long for traditions to develop. And so it's not a matter of is there, well, there's only tradition in old churches, but there is no tradition in a, in a new church or a church plant. Well, maybe not for long, but let that group of people meet together for a year or two. Now you have tradition. And so start changing that or monkeying with that, and immediately you'll see the reality that all churches are the same because they're made up of people. Some have just been gathered together longer than others. Uh, I remember listening to a podcast of uh, sort of a state of the church address by a guy that had been pastoring a church plant for about seven years. If, I, if you had taken away the pastor's name and the name of the church, you could have given the same set of concerns that he was giving to this seven-year-old church plant to a church that had been together 200 years. And so, uh, so tradition, uh, when, when it's, when it's um, you know, gone against in any kind of way, uh, certainly will bring about um, conflict. Uh, worship is another uh, example, the issue of worship. I know, um, you know Dr. Rayner has written some of late saying maybe some of the worship wars are, are lessening. I, I think maybe that's true, but it's certainly not gone. You know, and, and that can be that can be the case in all kinds of things. Everything from uh, stylistic preference; those are the kinds of things that you think about often with regard to worship conflict. But it can have to do with the number of songs you sing. Uh, it can have to do with how much are you standing up or sitting down. You know, those kinds of things. Have you ever had the hymn counters? I've been in churches where they have the hymn counters. Yes, they're counting how many courses versus hymns in the blended service to make sure it all stays even. That's right. Yeah, yeah you almost expect there's a scoreboard somewhere in the back that you can't see, but somebody's keeping it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's all lost, but then Amazing Grace comes at the end, and we're okay. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, as long as you pick the right invitation hymn, you're in good shape. Um, money, you know, obviously uh, the issue. Uh, there are there are a myriad of ways money can create conflict in the church, whether it has to do with um, who is supposed to give it and how much, right? I mean, whether whether they're to tithe or whether they're to be grace givers, uh, you know, um, that that sort of thing. How the money's going to be spent, what it's going to be spent on, you know, those kinds of things. Obviously, money, um, which that can be a conflict not only within the church, it could be conflict in families, within marriages, right? I mean, those kinds of things. Um, another one, though, another key one, obviously, is with regard to leadership. Uh, leadership can certainly be a source of significant conflict. Um, who makes the decisions? Uh, I remember uh, talking to a guy who was interviewing with a church about going there as pastor, and um, he began to ask about the leadership structure and who, who holds the power and who makes the decisions. And he came to find out that the deacon body uh, would be the ones who would select who would fill the pulpit when the pastor's out. Uh, so even as the senior pastor, he wouldn't have the opportunity to, uh, to you know, fill the pulpit when he was out, the deacons would choose that. So, uh, you know, I think that says something. Uh, just this past weekend, I was talking to a guy who had gone in view of a call to a church. And um, there were a few that had been there, very few, in fact, that had been in that church a long time. Their family had been in that church a long time. And they had gone and sort of rallied the uh, 
the inactive membership troops who were uh, on the church roll, but in many cases it maybe had not been there 10 or more years. Uh, and all of a sudden these unfamiliar faces show up on a Sunday morning to vote down this candidate who um, had been recommended to come as the pastor of the church. And so, uh, but the, a lot of the rationale behind that was there, may, there will be a power shift here in the church if this new young guy comes in, he'll have ideas, he'll want to do things, and therefore we, uh, whoever that small power cell was, would lose that control. And so there you have conflict. And, and along the way, obviously, for those who are new in ministry, the ability to identify the real leaders of the church, uh, especially when you're new and that's in service, servicing a, an established church, is really important because you'll have true leaders of the church who have no position, they have no official title, but they are in fact the godfathers pulling all the strings behind the scenes and are often church bullies who hijack the congregation uh, and things like that. So those kinds of dynamics are certainly a part of it uh, as you go into uh, church leadership. Well, Dr. Purcell, Marine Sniper, uh, kind of scary guy. Um, what I want to ask you now, let's put on our, our, our doctor's medical hat for a second. Let's talk about some diagnosis. Let's talk about some diagnosis, and then we're going to talk about some, some hopeful resolution issues. How do we diagnose conflict when, when we as church leaders recognize conflicts taking place? I know there are multiple levels of conflict we may, we may face. How do we identify this? How do we begin to deal with that? How do we diagnose and start handling that? Okay, in the time we have, obviously, it would be very difficult. But in, in that, you know, there are uh, often we have to look at the difference between what I call wartime and peacetime mentality. Uh, you cannot walk into a war zone and pretend as though everything is safe. I, I see often naive, uh, well-intended ministers go into a church and they get ambushed uh, very quick. You'll, a lot of my language I know is my, my background, but uh, in that, you know, it, that is exactly what happens to them uh, is they weren't aware that it would happen. In, By the in, way, I put you in the middle because I thought it would be safer, but also because you didn't have a blue sweater vest on. I know. I'm not, so. not really into sweater vests a whole lot. I here. thought I would just go ahead and state I did the wear my, my marine green. Before, before you emailed I me, I just it, thought but, I would go ahead and talk about the obvious. Yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I'm odd man out. I understand that. <laughs> Uh, I, I know there, there are things that I, I try to do at times when I do a consult or when I go to a church. One thing you were talking about a minute ago on the power structure, find out who it really is, the power base, and begin conversations. Put a leadership team around you very quickly to understand these as well to help you get some insights. Uh, I, I sit on a, uh, if I'm not the moderator, I'll sit in a corner seat up front and I'm looking to see who do these people look to when they're actually conducting a business meeting and they're actually talking. Who are they looking at? Because many times you'll see them before they ever vote, they start looking at people. Or you'll hear, I talked to so-and-so after the session and that's who they got their advice for or before a session. You begin to find out who the power brokers are, and you begin to find out then, is it because we're at some level of disagreement? Uh, different ones, like Speed Lee's, different ones who are consultants and have written on this uh, for a number of years. He talks about five levels. I change it a little bit, but, but I understand part of what he's looking at is, when I'm looking at it, am I looking at a predicament? Uh, level one, and, and you don't want to have a way of dealing with conflict like 
everything has got to be squashed. I see some people, like what uh, John was talking about a minute ago, is because they don't like conflict. They believe all conflict is bad. Some conflict can be good. I mean, certainly uh, you don't want the church or individuals to be damaged or hurt. That's not what I'm talking about. Some things are, are worth a little bit of a bump and a scratch every now and then because it's a good, healthy thing. Uh, I say to my youth ministers, or times I've been a pastor in a church where I am now doing an interim. I've got a young man as a youth minister. I, I try to encourage him to take some risks that are calculated risks. We talk about him ahead of time, but I give him permission to fail a little bit in that. And sometimes he's going to create what I call predicaments. And those predicaments are very minor. We, we can work through that. But, but you have to talk about it. You have to deal with that. And it's just situations. Sometimes disagreements. Uh, level 2B disagreements. Now we're getting to something that could get a little tougher. In marriage counseling, they call it chipping and sarcasm. Chipping and sarcasm is, again... Opposites attract, opposites attack. You know, I loved you, honey, because you were quiet. Now, she never makes a decision. i got to make all the decisions. And you'll hear things like that at times. Well, now we've got a disagreement. We've got something that we have to more readily set down and try to approach. I think a Matthew 18 deal is what we're talking about now. Is I go to them in the beginning and talk. I need to take somebody with me. We, we, need, we need to sit down and have a real discussion at some point. Uh, it talks about the idea of contest. And contest is competition. Whose program takes priority, whose desire takes priority, or it could be something that uh, you've talked about earlier, John, is that one-upmanship uh, of you're trying to steal my power base or uh, you're trying to water it down in some way. Something Randy had talked about earlier as well, the idea of when new leaders come in, at any point in time, they can seem like a threat to somebody like that. And, and when there is, then it's a contest. Uh, I've said in staff meetings, and I, I've had my senior adult minister snipe at my youth minister. My youth minister would snipe back. Well, my senior adult guy was an old guy. Uh, he had been at that church for umpteen years. Uh, I think he was there when Moses was a little boy, I think, and uh, in that church. But out of that situation, I, I made my youth minister apologize to him because I think that's never appropriate for you to uh, be inappropriate to a senior adult. And the older I get, the more I, I agree with that. But, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I think that wasn't right. But And we sat down and talked about it, but it was the deal of understanding Ministries, when a church grows, are in competition with each other at times, they see, when in fact we're not. You know, we're in this together. And that's our ecclesiology, what we were talking about earlier, having a good theology like that, good, strong ecclesiology is going to help you understand that and how to move it forward. But then, and there's fight or flight. Uh, one guy, Robert Dale, writes a book on, uh, on To Dream Again, and he talked about nostalgia, questioning, polarization, dropout. Uh, I did that one time in a church, and this is where the fight or flight is. Uh, I have to watch myself. I, I grew up, and I have terrible impulse control. Uh, I really have terrible impulse control. When somebody says something nasty to me, I want to hit them. And I, I, I have to confess that and, and deal with that. And I talk to folks about that at times. And, the, you know, it's amazing how much control I have when I'm around John, though, because I've never had that desire to hit John because I don't think it would be healthy or productive. I would need a nurse at that point to, to help me on that. I just don't see that as being productive. Uh, but at the same time, there are times you're around folks at times, you just feel like, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to say something. And I, I see young men destroy their ministries at times because they get up in the pulpit. 
during this fight or flight and they fight with words from the front and use it as a bully pulpit in the wrong way. And if be careful about those things, but understanding where we are, is this a time now that I've lost face or trust or credibility? Uh, is it a time now I need to move on? Or is this a time we need to dig in uh, and we need to do it? But you have to understand which level you're really at. Yeah, and, and so before we start moving toward kind of the re- resolution side of things, you know, what's interesting is, and, and this was really important for me to understand in ministry, not everybody fights the way I do. And so I, I kind of have a default mechanism, and that's, you know, we all will, a tendency to fight a certain way, and, and, and to, we, you know, some people want to flee, they just can't stand it, they got to get out of there, other people want to win, they're debaters, uh, they become historical and hysterical. And, and, and along the way, you know, to figure out kind of this is my natural tendency and to recognize that not everybody in the church responds the same way I do. And that not only is that true for individuals, but congregations have fighting styles as a whole. And not every congregation's the same. History, context, age, change, pace, all these things come into play as to, to what are some of the stressors that are helping this church uh, engage in conflict the way they are. And so, you know, when we think through some of these issues, what, what, what concerns me, and I've seen this as a leader in churches, I see this a lot as a consultant, if you do not deal with conflict in congregational life, then you are doomed to continue to repeat that conflict. You can't just ignore conflict and pretend that it will go away. Now, Larry's helped us with there are certain levels of so So we don't overreact to everything. I know guys, I know pastors who come home and they'll say to their wives, everybody hates me, nobody likes me, nobody likes my preaching, everybody hates my preaching. Now, what really happened was on, as he stood at the door, one little old lady said something not quite positive about his sermon. And like it that, was a warm sermon, right? Right. Not so hot. Not so hot. And so... And so, and so he goes home, and he's in utter despair and depression because that's, that's what he can deal with. And, and, and so we've got to identify significant conflict and deal with it because the problem is if we don't, if we try to compromise or we yield, all we're going to do when the same set of circumstances arise again in six months or a year, we're going to have the same fight again. It's true in married life. It's true in any couple relationship. It's true in congregational life. If you don't resolve, you're doomed to repeat this over and over and over again. You're never going to grow. You know, one of, the, one of the challenges, though, in pastoral leadership with regard to conflict in the local church, some of it's blatant and obvious, like Dr. Purcell was just describing, even at different levels. Part of the challenge of pastoral leadership, frankly, in local church ministry is that a lot of times uh, the conflict flies below the radar. Right, but there there are those who are upset. They are disgruntled. They are uh, confused. They are hurt. They are whatever, and um, but they're unwilling to voice that. At, at least in in a way, they they certainly don't voice it to the leadership. Um, sometimes they may voice it to one another, uh, and, and that's where hopefully your deacons or others are, that maybe would hear that would you know try to address it and say, hey, you know if you've got if you've got this concern, you really ought to take that to the pastor or one of the pastors who can do something about it. But, but one of the challenges, I think, of dealing with conflict in local church ministry is uh, sometimes you may not know it's there uh, until it really blows up and makes itself very visible. And, you know, that can be a real challenge. 
I think one of the things you, I, I use a, a term, and I've, I've been in a lot of churches that God, I, I thought he was somehow uh, cursing me in a way and, and, and putting me in this, but uh, I began to pastor churches that were very dysfunctional and, uh, and, and in conflict with each other. And I began to find out, and I called it, in the beginning it was what I called a holy huddle. You go to an emergency room. There's been a terrible accident. The family gathers in an emergency room and they huddle together. And you'll see pockets of families in different places uh, throughout an emergency room because they're finding strength from each other. That's the crisis. The patient is back. Now, all of a sudden, what has happened? You know, when the pastor comes, that has happened in the past. They're still grieving, but they're still hanging out in the ER. And you're looking at them and you're going, now what would happen if the patient's already been sent home and they're still huddled together in the emergency room? We say, there's something wrong here. You know, you folks need to get out of here. Uh, this, is not, this is not right. And it becomes an unholy huddle. Something what Randy was talking about at times, they have these little gatherings at times. And when they do, then it can become very unproductive in some way. And I'm not saying you try to figure out how to deal with it. Here's what I think you have to do. You have to understand yourself well enough to know you don't get caught up in those fights. Uh, and you don't make it a war every time something like that happens. You have to understand yourself. And that's why I alluded to earlier, I made the comment, and it's alluding to this, my biggest enemy in, in every church I've been a part of was not somebody else. It was me. I had to overcome myself that I didn't want to get into a contest with somebody about something and that I was, you know, I could win this because uh, that's my nature uh, in doing it. But rather letting the Lord bless and move through that thing uh, in a way that it would be different. It would be worked out differently in that way and be healthy. Yeah, I, I don't think you can overemphasize the need for good self-awareness in ministry leadership. I, I talk about this all the time. In fact, Randy's heard me talk about this ad nauseum probably. You know, and in a conflict, this has really helped me. Rather than overreact to an individual who's mad or who's acting up in the church or to a, a situation, I, I often run through a filter, a missionary taught me this years ago that it, it's always been very, very helpful, and it's a framework that I use all the time. If I understand what a person really, really loves, and I understand what a person really, really fears, then, then I can lead or manipulate them. Dictators have done this for years. Uh, because fear, fear is an act of authority. It's an issue of authority and worship. The Bible says we should fear God. Why? Because it's an issue of authority. When we fear something, we give it power. When we fear something, we pay homage to it. So the Bible says fear God. In fact, every book of the Bible has some version of fear not when it's referring to other things, anything other than God. And so I need to understand when I'm, when I'm dealing with this church bully, when I'm, in, I'm dealing with this individual who's acting up in the church, I try not to overreact to the predicament or to the contest. I try to not overreact to the circumstances that are really the symptoms of the disease. What's really going on in this person's life? The disease is going to relate to a sinfulness in their life. It's going to be a theological issue. And in the end, I, I, can, I can normally put it into some kind of terms of fear and love. They're fearing the wrong. Misdirected fear, misdirected love leads us to problematic actions. And so if we love the wrong thing and we fear the wrong thing, we're going to be in the wrong spot. So I'm trying to sit there and go, what is this person really afraid of? That's, why are they acting this way? Because they're really afraid of something. They're protecting themselves. They're prideful. That's a fear and, and a wrong love. But, but the point is, and I could go on and on for hours about that, the point is in ministry, 
It's not only important for me to know that about an individual in the church. It's not only important for me to know that about a congregation. A key to ministry is I know that about myself. What do I really, really love? And what do I really, really fear? And that's going to show me a whole lot about myself. And it's going to probably determine a large in a large way how I'm going to respond to conflict. So let's, let's move to resolution. So, so there's conflict. It's, it's inevitable. It's a reality. There's levels of conflict, lots of causes of conflict. We could talk for hours. A lot of good resources we're giving you. Look at those resources. They'll talk about those things. So how do we resolve conflict? So Dr. Purcell, help us. Sure. One of the first things I would uh, ask you to think about and consider very much before you move into a position is know where you best fit. But in fitting, when you're facing conflict of any sort, uh, one of the passages I looked at at times is uh, Hebrews 12, understanding at times about and, and reconciling conflict, looking for a practical approach to it, is, is looking at sometimes a conflict is a discipling process. And in that, again, going back to the personal side of it, there's times God has taught me how to practice spiritual disciplines. I'd read the books in seminary uh, as, as you have, but it's during those times of uh, reflective crisis moments that you grow, discipline and discipleship. Those, those are uh, from the same root word, and in that we're growing in grace and knowledge and understanding it. Out of discipline and restitution, a, a few things that are written about that that talk about. One is if you want to understand how to work through a, a resolution, one is you be gentle. Anytime I'm dealing with a conflict, I want to be gentle. And uh, in, in, in the beatitude of that, uh, I have to remind myself of this because uh, we, it can degenerate very quickly. Uh, husband to wife, parent to child. Uh, you know, it, it can uh, degenerate very quickly. Church member or, or someone else just saying enough's enough, you know. And I don't know if you've ever been that way, but you just kind of get fed up. It's almost like road rage uh, among folks you even know. I, I've, I've said at times, I had to have Brad Wagner where he said, uh, there's idiots and morons. Those are two biblical terms. If you study Greek, you'll see that. And in those biblical terms, there are idiots and morons. The idiot is the one that's driving too slow in front of me and the morons on my tail pushing me uh, down the highway. And there's always that conflict in doing it. And we can get road rage in a sense in church. And, and we want to be gentle. The other one is being relational. Uh, it's Galatians 6.1, Galatians 6.2. Talk about both of these. Being gentle, being relational, understanding God has given you a teachable moment. And that moment is, I may lose the battle. I, I've seen more than one time. I've bit my tongue. Yeah. Uh, I put my hands in my pocket and I've just looked at them and I've listened. There's other times I wanted to strike back, uh, but I just, you know, you just don't do that. You know, that's just not something that is permissible uh, in a case like that where we're going to get in an arm wrestling contest or something. You're relational on that. You're really interested in seeing where God is taking it. Uh, in doing it. Something I did with my child, uh, I have a degree in counseling as well, and I, I've run an addictions unit. I've worked with troubled teenagers. Now, I thought I knew something about adolescence. I had a teenage girl who grew, and, and, uh, and, and it just blew me away at times when we were talking and doing it, but I valued the relationship I had with her. Uh, being gentle, being relational, and then being uh, beneficial, Romans 6, 20 all in, uh, through 22, the idea of understanding that God has you there to benefit uh, the, the situation and then be purposeful. Uh, what is the, the reason for the conflict? 
What is the reason for it? It could be a growth moment for you or for them. But we know this. God has given us, according to Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation. And, and that's what we should be about. Sure. Well, there's, there's a, a principle that I often use. Repentance um, normally requires replacement. That, that's worth noting. I, I mean, that, that's so good I'd write that down someplace. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure. Surely I didn't come up with that. But uh, repentance normally requires replacement. What I mean by that is, is that if I'm sinning against God, it's not enough for me just to acknowledge that. It's not just enough for me to to stop doing that. We often talk about repentance as is about face idea, and that's true. But what, what I found, and I, I, the word addiction really brought this home, because I know people who are addicted to conflict. And, and the problem is if I don't replace the negative behavior with positive behavior, I'm probably doomed to go back into that negative behavior again, whether that's an individual. So, so I don't want to be drunk with wine. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a replacement principle. And the same thing, that's, that's true on an individual level, but it's also true on a congregational level. So resolution often takes replacement. I might have to replace a policy. I might have to replace a person. I might have to replace a process, and this can get very, very practical. We might have to create new rules in the church so that we don't find ourselves having the same argument again in a year. And so we might actually need to replace the Constitution. We might need to replace traditions. We might need to replace style. I mean, all kinds of issues come into play. And so I've got to be aware of this idea that we might have to replace something in order for us to not only move forward but to make sure... Uh, that we don't repeat that down the road again. And so it's, it's a principle that's true in, in, in personal life, but also congregational life. Randy, what, anything you want to add? Well, I was just thinking about the, the principles that he laid out there, the characteristics sort of, particularly I think the, the first two, the gentle and relational, uh, really stand out to me um, as, as a young pastor. I mean, I consider myself fairly young, uh, much longer, younger than you guys, for sure. Thank you. Um, you know, I, when, I, when I think about the gentle and relational, especially when I see those in my generation um, and younger who are going into um, responsibilities of pastoral ministry, um, there, there can be a real sense. And again, I, I think it has to do with going back to the laboratory, having been well-trained in doctrinal truth ecclesiological truth and those kinds of things to want to then go and express that 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 purity of doctrine in pristine practice but failing to understand the context in which they're seeking to apply it and so when conflict arises unfortunately sometimes generated by the leader himself right in how he goes about seeking to lead then what happens either there can be a blaming Right When the conflict arises, these um, reprobate people just don't love God and don't love his word or else they'd just come in line with what I'm telling them to do. Um, or, you know, just failing to realize that God has called us to shepherd his people, which means sometimes they're going to end up in the ditch and in the briars and in the whatever. And we, we get down there and we help them out. We, we seek to lead them forward. And unfortunately, a lot of times what I see in terms of even within conflict is uh, this sense of wanting to, uh, in a more cowboy type fashion, drive the sheep to where they need to go as opposed to lovingly, gently, relationally leading them 
you know, from the front, helping them to get to where they need to go. And again, it goes back to, I think, what Larry said earlier, that discipleship mentality. I can, if, I, if I remember that it's God's church and that this is a sin-related issue, then I'm going to love my brother or sister enough to want to see them grow in, in their discipleship relationship with Christ as opposed to just, I want relief from the pain or the bitterness of the, of the particular issue of conflict. And so we've got to remember that, that gentle spirit, that relational context for how we deal with these things. Some of the ones that I've had to deal with, some of the most painful issues of conflict with, I had very close personal relationship with. Sure. And I think that's one of the things that, it goes back to what we started out with, the issue of Genesis 3. You see that everyone was blaming someone else. And Adam would say, uh, you know, and, and I, my wife and I, we play that game all the time where I'll look at her and I say, Lord, it's that woman uh, that you made. You know, that she's the one that did this uh, and doing it. And, and that's what we can tend to do because that is our default. That is the mechanism within sight of us that we say, it's not really my fault. You know, I, I didn't do this. And, you know, it seems like anytime there is anything going on, that's what we look to do. And that's what we have fall back on. And that's why I, I think these B questions are really good to look at. Be gentle, be relational uh, in, in every kind of context that you're looking at. And is there a way that I'm going to be restitutional in this? Sure. Well, as our time kind of draws to a close for this part of, of this event, let me just remind us of a couple of things. The two words, discipline and discipleship. There's a sequence that I think is important to remember in church leadership. We need to disciple before we discipline. If we haven't discipled, we need to evaluate how we're disciplining. And frankly, if we haven't discipled well, I'm not sure who's the one who really needs to be disciplined. Because as leaders, we have failed. Uh, There's an old saying that if you ever have to fire someone... And that catches them by surprise. You haven't loved them very well. And in church life, if we have to discipline someone and they're surprised by that, you haven't loved them very well. And so there's an interpersonal side to this. The other thing I'd want to say in closing from Scripture is this. Remember this. Paul and Barnabas, two godly men who both seemed fairly consumed at seeking to do the will of God, had conflict. And at one part in their ministry had to go two separate ways. And sometimes separating, mutual separation, is not necessarily a failure. And so we, we never want to see churches split. We fight that. We hate that. But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes people going different ways in the service of God may very well be the will of God. But how they separate is absolutely incredibly crucial. It leaves scars not only within the, the congregation, but also within the community. I did not, I did not grow up in church, and, and when, I be, when I was saved, my family was not very excited about that. And when I began to identify myself as a Baptist, they were really not excited about that. My father was basically the district attorney in our community, and, and my father's memory of Baptist was this. I remember when we, I had to call the sheriff... And we had to go to the First Baptist Church in this community where I grew up. And we had to line the sanctuary with deputy sheriffs while First Baptist Church had a business meeting so that they could split and form another church in town. 
That's what you Baptists are good for. And that scar carried way past, decades past the actual event. So the way we deal with conflict is not only important for within the church, but it has impact on how the gospel is spread outside of the church and how the Great Commission is fulfilled. I want to thank you guys so much for doing this. We could talk for hours, and we're going to continue to dialogue here live. For those of you who are watching this, thank you so much for downloading this and looking at this. While you're on the website, please check out the other resources. Note the resource list that we've put together for conflict. Get some of these books. They're very helpful. I want to point out one by Robert Jones, Dr. Jones, who's on our faculty called Pursuing Peace. Dr. Jones works with our uh, Peacemaker Ministry. And uh, that'll be on the list as well when you'll see it when you download this. So thank you all so much for watching this. Look forward uh, to you joining us at our next time we get together in this Authenticity Series. Thank you so much.